Um, I just want to read uh, a few um, scriptures in different places, if you will turn with me to them. First of all, in Zechariah and chapter 4. Zechariah and chapter 4 and verse 2. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have seen and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl upon the top of it and its seven lamps thereon. There are seven pipes to each of the lamps which are upon the top thereof. And then in verse 6, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. In the little book of Haggai, chapter 2, Verse 6, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the precious things of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And then in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, from verse 11. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And verse 21, He that overcometh I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. We have been, I have been in the last few weeks, speaking on this whole subject of reigning with Christ, or from another angle, characteristics of kingship and overcoming. And uh, we have looked at it first through the whole Bible, uh, a bird's eye view of the whole matter, and then we have looked at it as it is illustrated in different lives of the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses and Joshua, David and Solomon. Now this morning, I want to take the last group, and I'm going to give them a collective name this morning, 
um, and in the little time that we have, seek to underline one more characteristic of um, overcoming. These, of course, are the technically the real overcomers. Um, because generally speaking, we give the term overcomer to, the, to those who when there is general decline and general superficiality, and when things have departed from the mind of the Lord, um, they are the ones who go right through with God and give him the opportunity to do in them what he wanted to do in the whole, and in the end realize his purpose in and through them, and then bring the rest into it. You see, the idea so often about the overcomer is that they are a kind of, it's the preaching of some kind of elite inner circle, some kind of little group of interned superior people who look down their noses at all other Christians. And uh, the overcomer uh, teaching has been dubbed uh, as that. But it is not true. If we look at the, uh, the teaching, the Word of God, um, uh, on this matter, we discover that whenever things go wrong, God takes one or a few or a uh, number, and through them and the way they have to go, God fulfills his purpose, and then he brings the rest into the blessing. In other words, a person cannot be an overcomer if they think they are something elite and superior and better than the others. Uh, that is not an overcomer. An overcomer is someone in whom God has done such a work that they are prepared to lay down their lives without any thought of reward, without any thought of satisfaction, that the rest may be blessed. That is the teaching of the Word of God on the matter of overcoming. God doesn't want people on the throne who are all going to be interested in exhibiting themselves, exhibiting their talents, exhibiting their resources, or even exhibiting what the Lord has done in them, drawing attention to themselves. That's not overcoming. The whole thought of bringing them to the throne is that the universe may be governed for the blessing of all that others may be blessed, that everything may speak glory, that the, that the whole universe may be a manifestation of the presence and glory of God. And that really is this whole matter of overcoming. Well, we've looked at it in different ways. This morning, I want to look at this group that we call so often the remnant. Now, any of you who want to follow this matter right the way through and see whether what I'm saying is true, if you take a concordance, Young's or Strong's, a good concordance, and look up the word remnant, and then look at all the references to the remnant, you will be very, very surprised. Because Isaiah and some of the other prophets spoke again and again and again about the remnant. And this remnant in the mind of God are those who are going to pay a very, very full price uh, through their faithfulness and devotion to the Lord, but who in the end will go right through to the throne of God. And because of them, then the whole purpose of God can be fulfilled. In some places, for instance, 
uh, we are told that the tree will be cut down, but there will be a stump left, and out of the stump there will be a sprout, and from that sprout the whole thing will come to pass. The nation will be cut down, but one will become a thousand, and a little one shall become a great nation. It's the whole, this whole thought of somehow or other um, the Lord reducing right down to a minimum and then fulfilling his purpose through the minimum and bringing the rest into the blessing. We have it, of course, and oh, once you begin to see this matter, on every side in the word of God you see it illustrated um, and expressed. For instance, take Gideon. He began off with 32,000 people. God said far too many. Tell everyone who wants to go home to go home. Wouldn't you all get a shock if one of these days we just stood up and said, everyone who's not prepared to be out and out, everyone who's only prepared to come on Sunday go to meeting type of Christianity, go home. Just go home. Terrible shock. See, because it's in the Bible, we all accept it. But Gideon was told by the Lord, tell everyone who's bothered about home things, everyone who's bothered about domestic things, everyone who's bothered about other things other than the things of God, go home. Now, there's no condemnation. Just go home. You can worship the Lord at home. Go home. And an enormous number went home and left 10,000. And then the Lord said to Gideon, oh, far too many. Far, far too many. They'll take the glory to themselves. Very well, go down to the river and drink, down to the brook in Harod, and drink from the brook. And those that um, bend down and lap the water up, send them home. And those that cup it up to their mouths, keep. And they were reduced from 10,000 to 300. Now, that is the whole point, because through the 300, God won a tremendous victory over the Midianites and the Philistines, you will remember, and brought the whole of Israel into the blessing. All the people that went home came into the blessing of the 300. All the 10,000, all the 32,000. It wasn't that diff there were different levels, and God said, now that 32,000, the, the 22,000 that went home, we're going to give them nothing. And the 10,000 that went uh, later were well not 10,000, work it out somebody mathematically, 9,700, right? Um, uh, I'm getting better in my old age. Um, uh, send, them, send them and they're not going to get anything. They're not gonna, no, it is the same principle when David took his men and some had to stay by the baggage and others went forward. They all came into the reward. Now that is the principle of the overcomer. And some who perhaps have gone that rather hard way sometimes feel a bit bitter and twisted about it. It. Why should we have to go all this way? And then everyone else gets into the blessing. They don't know what it cost us. They don't know what it meant to us. To have the inner history, the inner battles, the great conflicts, the travail behind the scenes. They don't know anything about that. They've all come into the blessing. But that is service in the eyes of God. Now, of course, the remnant that we find spoken of again and again are um, summed up by, if I give you certain names, you will remember them. Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. They're just a few, okay? If we went back a little earlier, we would say Daniel, and back a little earlier, Ezekiel, and back a little earlier, Jeremiah. These are all part of this same movement of God, of what, what we call recovery. 
Now, there are one or two things here that I want you to understand. First of all, the great majority of the people of God had settled down where they ought not to be. The vast, vast majority of the people of God had settled down where they ought not to be. And furthermore, they had it very, very comfortable. They, uh, they, had, um, they were in Babylon or other places in the whole great complex of Babylonia. You remember they were all um, uh, deported by Nebuchadnezzar, the whole nation, in three waves of deportations, finally leaving only the poorest of the poor in the land. They were taken away. Now for 70 years this happened, 50 years of exile. Now in that 50 years of exile, a remarkable thing happened to the people of God. The problem that had been at the root of their fall had been idolatry, giving worship to other things, things other than God. And the prophets had spoken again and again and again and again about this matter, warning them that if they had those high places, if they allowed the Baal worship, if they set up those images, if they had the groves through the land, God would judge them. And the judgment came, and then this remarkable thing happened. For the people of God in Babylon were so divorced from their idolatry that from that day to this, the Jewish people have never worshipped another idol. It was a homeopathic cure. If you understand homeopathy, like cures like. God said, right, idolatry, I pleaded with them, I pleaded with them, I pleaded with them, now they will have a dose of it. So he sent them to the center of idolatry. And they had all the idol worship they could wish. All around them and everything. And then it did it. Then the ministry of Jeremiah began to have its day. Then even more the ministry of Ezekiel. With his whole great emphasis on the glory of God. Departing from the house of God in Jerusalem. Because of their idolatry. Because of their harlotry. Because of their spiritual adultery, because of their compromise over spiritual things, over the things of God. Then God spoke to them through Ezekiel and they began to understand now we must worship the Lord in purity. And they began all kinds, of, they began to study the word of God for the first time. The word of God came into its place. The law of God came into its place. They began to make the distinction between unclean and clean foods. They began to watch very carefully on the Sabbath. They began to have meeting places which we now call synagogues. They all began at this time. They began to build these simple little places where the word of God could be expounded where it could be read, where it could be studied, where it could be interpreted and expounded, where matters could be settled on the whole question of behavior and conduct and life, routine life, as well as, we might say, the things of the kingdom. And as always, the people of God, through much affliction, began to prosper. And if we believe archaeology, before very long, the banking houses were in their hands and so were a number of other things in their hands in Babylon as well and they began to prosper and prosper they had schools they had their own freedom of worship uh, everything seems so wonderful but you see 
The purpose of God could never be fulfilled in Babylon. How could the word of the prophet Isaiah be fulfilled? And thou, Galilee of the nations, you will see a great light for unto us. A child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father of the Prince of Peace. How could it be fulfilled if there was no Galilee? Do you understand? How could it be fulfilled? How could that be fulfilled in Jerusalem? How could a virgin conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel if there was no Galilee? Or listen to the prophet Micah, also bef uh, prophesying before the captivity, when he said, And thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, thou which art little amongst the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth he that shall be ruler of my people, Israel, whose goings have been from old, from everlasting. How could it be fulfilled? There was no Bethlehem. It had been raised to the ground. Its population had been deported. There was no Bethlehem. How could the word of the prophet um, Micah be fulfilled? And many, many other things, other words of Isaiah about Jerusalem being built up. Jeremiah's word about them returning again to them. How could it be fulfilled in Babylon? It couldn't be fulfilled in Babylon. You could know the Lord in Babylon. You could be saved by the grace of God in Babylon. You could study the word of God in Babylon. You could grow in the knowledge of the word of God in Babylon. You could be devoted to the Lord in Babylon. You could be separated from the world in Babylon. You could have a real relationship with the Lord and with your brothers and sisters in Babylon. But the purpose of God could never, ever be fulfilled in Babylon. And that is the crux of the whole matter. That's why one of the most beautiful little psalms was written coming out of that experience, 137th psalm, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst thereof we hanged up our harps. For they, they that, for there they that led us captive required of us songs, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I remember thee not. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. You see, there were those in Babylon, a remnant, a small remnant, who had seen something of the purpose of God. And as they studied the word of God, and as the spirit of God threw light upon it, they came to see that somehow or other, everything was related to Jerusalem. It was related to the rebuilding of the house of God, rebuilding to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, to the rebuilding of Bethlehem, to the rebuilding of Galilee, that somehow or other, someone had got to pay the price and go back. Now, there were three returns. The first return was under the leadership of Zerubbabel. The second return was under the leadership of Ezra. And the third return was under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, you may just like the dates there, only just wait, it's not a history lesson, fear not. 537 was when they returned under the decree of Cyrus, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. 
458 before Christ was when they returned under the leadership of Ezra, and 445 was when they returned under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, that's very important to my point this morning, and it's, this is the reason why. You see, everyone loves the book of Esther. I must ask the forgiveness of all those who are named Esther. But everyone loves the book of Esther. But the rabbis had tremendous discussion about the book of Esther as to whether it should ever even be in the Bible. And it continued right up to the second century after Christ. Why? Because not there, it not once mentions the things of God. It not once mentions the word of God. It not once mentions anything about the purpose of God. It seems to be a heathen book. Actually, in Hebrew, there are four turning points in the history of Esther. Four turning points with acrostics in Hebrew, which spell the name of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? But you've got to know a little Hebrew to know, understand that. But there are four turning points in where, where hidden in the record is the name of the Lord. Turning point, the Lord. Turning point, the Lord. Turning point, the Lord. Turning Now, you see, we love the story of Esther, of how the Lord brought her to the throne and how he saved all those people in, uh, in the dispersion uh, by her. But you see, now listen carefully, you see, Esther comes in between the first and the second return. You understand? Between 486 before Christ and 465 before Christ, somewhere in that time, we had the story of Esther. Now, here is my whole point. God was prepared to deliver all the Jews who didn't return. He was prepared to save them. He was prepared to, to exhibit and express his mighty arm in their deliverance. But their deliverance made absolutely no had absolutely no effect whatsoever on the purpose of God. If every Jew in Babylon had died, it would not have meant one single digit of difference to the purpose of God being fulfilled. Why? Because God had got the remnant back. That's why. He got them back. And you see, one of the edicts passed was this. If there are Jews in sufficient number, they can arm themselves and withstand, effect, uh, withstand attack. Otherwise... They can be massacred. And the only place where there were Jews in sufficient numbers and trained and hardy enough were the ones who had gone back to Jerusalem. They were pioneers. Now, my point is simply this. There are three kinds of people in Christian circles. I'm talking about real Christians. There are those who have absolutely no idea whatsoever to the purpose of God. They're the kind of people that would come to a, a place like this or any other company of people, and there are a number of them all over uh, the world, um, uh, and would just look upon it as a church or a chapel. Nothing more, nothing less. They don't understand. They don't understand anything of the history. Don't know. There are people who may even come regularly who have absolutely no idea. Their vision goes up to a certain point, getting people saved. Or perhaps it goes a bit beyond that to holiness. Or perhaps it goes beyond that to the charismatic. Or perhaps it goes beyond gifts to something else in service. But they do not really see the purpose of God. 
For them, it's just a point of going where you get a bit more life and a bit more teaching and a little bit more informality and warmth. And that's all that really matters. And then you judge, well, I don't know, I think I'd rather go here or there because I get a little bit more there than I get here. There are a large number of people who are saved, thank God, who know the Lord, thank God, but who have no idea as to the purpose of God, why God has saved us, what he's driving at, what is the object of his purpose. You have the second group of people who do know what the Lord's purpose is. They could even give you um, a, a sort of uh, so many points on it. They, they, they are the people who can sort of spout the scriptures. They can, they can define the things. They can tell you, yes, we know what the purpose of God is. The purpose of God is to present the bride to his son. The purpose purpose of God is to build the house of God so that the top stone can come into it. The purpose of God is to build living stones together, but they are not prepared to pay the price. They know it in the head, but they will not yield themselves to the Lord. There are many, many people like this who are prepared to go right along with it. They've seen something, but they have issues in their lives that they will not allow God to deal with. And then you have a third group, the people who, having seen the purpose of God, commit themselves lock, stock, and barrel to that purpose. And it means a tremendous amount the way they have to go. Now, my whole point is this. Those who come to the throne of God have been made by the grace of God an integral part of his purpose an integral part of his purpose. In other words, because they have paid the price, because they have been prepared to go back, because they have been prepared really to go the whole way with the Lord, whatever the cost, because they've been prepared for the discipline of being built together, the discipline of being related, the discipline of being under authority, and all these other things, because they are prepared to pay that kind of price, they have become an integral part of the fulfillment of God's purpose. That's why they are overcomers. Through them, the Lord fulfills his purpose. Many of us are quite happy to live in this state of things, Christian-wise, which is anything but what God wants. We know it. We see all our top-heavy organization, all our dead formality, all our system that we've inherited, they know very well that somehow or other, if God is really going to get his way, it's going to mean the turning over of the whole thing. Now, you see, those folks who went back, they had no synagogues. They had no comfort comfortable places where they could just sit and study the Word of God. If you read the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, if you read the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, what do you find? You find that they had to stand with sword in one hand and trowel in the other. There were men like Sanballat and Tobias and Geshem or Gashmu, the Arabian. Some of them had a bit of Jewish blood in them. 
And they wanted to come right in on the work and they wanted to bring into the work all the compromise of the Samaritans. For them, it was, why do you have to be so legalistic? Why do you have to be so 100%? Why do you have to be so absolute? Let us join in. But Nehemiah said, never. And then began all the problems. Oh my, the problems. Now, I must tell you, that to follow the Lord in this way costs you infinitely more than just settling down into something which is other than the Lord's mind but which the Lord will bless. Now, some people have got the strangest ideas about this. You see, they say, but the Lord shouldn't bless it. And therefore, you get things that people say, this kind, they say, it must be the devil. Now, listen, my dear friend. God blesses his children wherever he finds them. When he finds born-again believers, he'll bless them anywhere. Some people feel, you know, that you can't, the Lord couldn't possibly save a Catholic, especially if that Catholic went on being a Catholic. Oh, it's impossible. They should become an Anglican. <laughs> and then the Anglicans, the Baptists feel, how can you be an Anglican? How can the Lord bless Anglicans with all that business about infant baptism? Oh, impossible. If anyone's going to go on with the Lord, they'll be out of Anglicanism in a moment. Then you've got the brethren. And they feel that if you're going to go on with the Lord, you'll be out of the Baptists in no time. You can't have any freedom around the Lord's table. And then you've got the charismatics. Thank God for the charismatics. <laughs> but I mean, you've got the charismatics. And they say, oh! You ought to be out of all that lot. Or the Lord will turn it upside down if he gets inside. And one of the most wonderful things is this, that God has turned things upside down. That is what is so absolutely wonderful. Things that a few years ago, 20 years, 15 years ago, we would have said, it's impossible, absolutely impossible. God has done it. But you see, it's not now a question of our geographical location as such. It is a question of the dimension we are in spiritually. Whether we are committed to the fulfillment of the purpose of God or not. Whether we are prepared for whatever the cost will be, that God should have his way. If the Lord has said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. You remember there were two olive trees, one on either side of the lampstand. One spoke of kingship, the other spoke of priesthood. Those two great ministries. You see, we, if we're going to see this job done, we've got to reign with Christ now. You know, Zerubbabel was a king in spirit. It would have been much easier for him, with his leadership qualities, to have stayed in the comfortable milieu or atmosphere of Babylon. Going around speaking at all the synagogues, expounding the word of God, but how do you expound Micah chapter 5 when there's no Bethlehem? But you know, this is the funny thing in Christian circles. 
We can expound things. I remember some years ago listening to a brother who gave us the most amazing address on the nature of the church. And the thing that so amazed me was that in the denomination he came from, none, hardly a single thing of it was true. And when I asked him about it and said, well, now, brother, I'm very interested. I had no idea that you, you believed this. Yes, but then I said, but how do you reconcile it with the practice of your particular um, group that you're in? And he said, well, you see, brother, the doors would have closed against my ministry if I preached this there. That is not overcoming. If I think that my ministry is more important than the house of God, where am I? It is an incredible thing to me to think that when I go sometimes to theological seminaries and so on, I think of one or two that I've been in the States where the, the, the students, the fellows, are taught how to keep your congregation, how to get their support. And in the end, one feels that the congregation is a backdrop for the minister. It's the stage upon which he preaches. They are there for him. And therefore the ministry is more important than the end. But the ministry has an end and the end is the house of God and the end is that the house of God should be so built up that it can build up itself in love and increase with the increase of God and not be dependent on big ministries. Well, as usual, the clock has beaten us. But you begin to see what I'm... I want to ask you a question. Is your spiritual experience in the book of Esther? Or is it in the book of Nehemiah? Where are you? Now don't get me wrong on this matter. Those who do not go back, God does not hold it against them. He does not withdraw their salvation. He does not curse them. He works wonderful deliverances on their behalf. Sometimes some of the things the Lord does in a Babylonian state of affairs is more wonderful than some of the things he seems to do in the land. But those folks will never become part of the fulfillment of God's purpose. Saved, yes, but not brought to the throne. It is that that I want to put my finger on this morning. Overcoming, as those of you who have been with us through all the, these studies we've taken, is not just a matter of our relationship one to another. It's a matter of faith. Overcoming faith. It's a matter of life. Overcoming life. It's a matter of the transformation 
of our characters and of our beings by the renewing of our mind. It is the tasting of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It is a matter of inheriting. All these things are personal things. But then it becomes a matter of the house of God. We saw that in David and Solomon. And we see it even more here. Someone read at the beginning of this meeting, and that wasn't planned, as you, most of you know, those wonderful words from Isaiah that the Lord would say to Cyrus, Jerusalem shall be built and the foundation shall be laid. Those words were uttered before they even went into captivity, before the exile even took place. It was a remnant that was going to be used by God to do that. Dear child of God, I'm not asking for any superior elite circle, nor am I saying that a company such as this that meets here in this house is automatically overcomers or overcoming. Nothing of the kind. I doubt not that there are few overcomers in our midst, real overcomers. But at least we have the opportunity of hearing truth and the, the opportunity to receive the truth and obey it. We, thank God, haven't got some of the problems that many others have got of established kind of denominational uh, formality and history and I don't know what else. But we still have an enemy. What a tragedy it would be if some of you who have been associated with us here, should yourselves not come to the throne. It is a matter of whether you are prepared to lay down your life for him and commit yourself to his way, whatever the cost. May the Lord help you and me. And may we be like those in Psalm 126 who said when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, uh, when the Lord brought back those that returned to Zion, we were like unto them the dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the nations, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall weep in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with joy, bringing his sheep with him. Oh, how wonderful it will be when God has worked such a character in us by his spirit in this whole matter of reigning with Christ, of overcoming, of the recovery of the house of God, and it's being built to receive the top stone, that we shall not even think of ourselves, of our own satisfaction, or our own glory, or our own reward, or our own position, but are only interested in the Lord himself and in the people of God, their blessing, their glory, their building up, and the world.
that it might be saved. If God could get such a character as that, the eternal government of the universe in the ages to come is absolutely safe. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, some things this morning have been said that may be involved and complex. We ask thee, dear Lord, that thou wilt give us light, that thou wilt throw light upon this, that in thy light we may see light. Oh, God, wake us up. Those of us, Lord, who perhaps have seen things at one time, but somehow, Lord, our eyes have become dim, and perhaps through disobedience we've slowed right down. Of others of us, Lord, who have seen but have never committed ourselves to thy discipline, O oh Lord, bring us to such a place. And those of us who've never seen, Lord, let thy light shine into our hearts in this matter, liberating us bringing us into a new dimension with thyself and for all of us, Lord, that we may learn to overcome as, Lord Jesus, thou also didst overcome. And we ask it in thy name. Amen.